Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. In these days of social distancing, what is missed most, more than getting out and about, are the conversations with friends and family. So much has been going on that this week, I'm sitting down with my good friend, Dai Abdullah, to talk about a little bit of everything. Originally from Detroit, this brother has lived all over the world. He speaks several languages, including Mandarin, Chinese, and Arabic. He is one of five openly gay imams in the world. Dai is the executive director of the Mecca Institute, a nonprofit organization focusing on women, the LGBT community, and youth through its online school, which prepares Muslim scholars for leadership's position and through its think tank. He's thoughtful, world-wise, and even funny. It's an honor to call him friend. Dai, welcome back. How are you today? Well, I retired from the the typical nine to five, and since I, uh, you know, started my process thirty some years ago, my transformation thirty some years ago, I stepped out of the nine to five pro process, the nine to five routine. When going back to school and then becoming a quote unquote uh, self-identified professional. Uh, then my scheduling changed again to where the the lines blurred between the nine to five to working when necessary, uh, which allowed me a lot more flexibility and um, and breadth of new new things that I can involve myself in. So I'm actually retiring back from doing work to make certain that I have income to take care of my needs. Now that I've retired, I've gotten Social Security. It's not such a struggle every day, week to week, month to month anymore. Um, I have a little bit of savings uh, set up. So now I can now take my time and really concentrate on Mecca Institute and also uh, be able to think and contemplate what will be the rest of my senior years. I'm going to ask you about the Mecca Institute. You know, but that last time we had talked, you were, you know, you were, you were getting things involved and going and setting up with that. How has all of this affected the Mecca Institute, or is it giving you more time to be focused on Mecca? Yes, it has. It has, it has helped me reshape how when we have a vision, when we have a dream, we have to then knock it down to the practicalities of how can it exist in the real world. And so I have been able to go through that process, one where it has ended up being much stronger, much more secure within itself as an institution. And therefore, um, I'm, the bottom line is that it's better than it was from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say a few things. Uh, when we do talk about wanting to change the world, quote-unquote, 
Uh, we have to look at that dream and how do we bring it into reality in the real world. Well, many times we in the West will look at uh, philanthropic organizations to help us get our roots or establish ourselves, seed money, blah, blah, blah. But too often we come into that idea that our ideas are very good and that they will support it for a period of time. But that period of time generally is far less than what we need to really become secure in making our, our ideals long-lasting. So I encourage people that if you have dreams, make certain that you have other methodologies set along the way so that you can become self-sufficient. Uh, the adage, God bless the child that has their own, rings true mm -hmm. in this way. Mm -hmm. So it's very important. So uh, in today's world, you can't depend on ideas carrying you forward only, but you have to have ideas that help bring you new ideas, that help bring you practical things, which help bring you cash in the door. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Additionally, we have to look at the way in which people donate, too. Um, I must say to you that I've had some surprising events in terms of donations. Um, one philanthropic organization, I won't mention their name, they had promised us a second year of funding, and then they withdrew it. Hmm. And we didn't understand why they withdrew it because we didn't do anything. We were very transparent and showed them everything we did along the way. But when you have faith in God, when you have faith and you know that what you're doing is right, and you follow the signs, because God lets you know what's the right way to go. And someone showed up about a month after they said they were going to give us the money. Someone had asked me to do something a few months before that to help them deal with it. They were going before the Supreme Court, and they asked me for assistance in locating a number of organizations, uh, LGBT organizations around the country, to help them sign on to this advocacy brief. And I did, and I got like 40 organizations to sign on. Well, their law firm had won a suit um, of discrimination suit, and they were giving away the, the, the benefits, you know, the, the funds they received for mm -hmm. legal counsel. And they wound up giving us $100,000, replacing every wow. one red cent that that organization said they were going to give us. Mm-hmm. So that not wow. only reaffirmed my belief that those things, but I knew God had us on the right path. Yeah, you know, sometimes yeah. that I tell people, like, like you know how he said, it's not that one door has shut. It's just like you're on the right path. It just was you weren't supposed to go to the right. You were supposed to go to the left, you know. Uh -huh. You can't have it in your mind. I got to go right. I got to go right. I got to go right. But if you have faith in what you're doing, it shows up. Yes, it does. Uh -huh. And it showed up, and it helped us move forward. It helped us become the largest progressive Muslim organization in the world online. We wound up, uh, at that time, we've only lost about maybe 10,000 people, um, followers, but we were able to rise up to about 107,000 followers worldwide. Mm -hmm. So all of these things came about because of faith and belief in something that you know is right. You, you, know, you, may, you have your prayers, you keep your eyes open, your ears open, you listen to people. You work with folks. We've had a number of people who've come to help to help us, who've done things for us gratis, or they've said, "When you get some money, pay me." Mm. 
And mm-hmm. so we've been able to do things that would have, if we had to pay cash out, we would have paid several hundred thousand dollars worth of work that people have done for gratis. And as we've made money or have gotten more money, we've paid them all. Mm-hmm. So, and I know what we're doing is wonderful, you know, is the right thing. And God keeps showing us the right way, the right path. So I have to get myself out the way. You know, egotistically, I've had a couple of times where I wanted to say, you know, if I had an opportunity, I'd smack so-and-so. I turned that over. I said, God, just let me turn that over. Let me surrender that anger over to you because you're, you're a better person, the better creator to handle that and let me be free. And I, and I let it go and continue to find that more and more things come because I've decided not to be in control, not get in my own way. Now, and you know, so it just helped. You know, you have always been, to me, ahead of the curve with this online, you know, an online presence, online learning. And now that everybody's doing it, and that's what people are talking about, and they're doing all this Zoom and all that, has that helped? Uh, your programming and what you want to do? I mean, it's like now the technology is really catching up with your needs, and are you using that more? Is that a help? Yes, it is. We still have classes online. But, see, one of the things that I think that I have learned that maybe I hadn't articulated clearly for people is that Mecca Institute really is a think tank. And what we do is that we're part of our process. Our mission is to help re-educate Muslims in contemporary times to understand what came before them and how we're going to use that information today and take it forward into the future. Like in my my, uh, TED talk I did about five years ago, Muslims are going to be in space, and the stuff that we know that Muslims can do here on Earth are not going to work in space. So yeah. we need to start understanding that just because they did it that way back then doesn't mean that we have to do it the same way today or into tomorrow. We can carry some of the same rules. We can carry some of the same things and, and, and benefits, meaning that we follow those things that help us as human beings interact with human beings better, but it doesn't mean that we have to do it the same exact way. Mm-hmm. And so and, and as I said in my TED Talk, I asked the question, where are you going to tie your camel? That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, cute. Man. I, like, I like that. I like that. You know, I think so. and one, mm-hmm. one fellow asked me, he says, well, um, he said, well, you know, prayer will be the same. I said, well, that's, you're absolutely correct. Yes, doing prayers will be part of it. I said, but the way is that which way to Kaaba? Because, you know, we always do this thing of trying to decide which direction we should pray to get to Kaaba, right? Mm-hmm. I said, well, then in space, it will depend on which star you're near. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it's a 72-degree mm-hmm. arc off of Andromeda, okay? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and I like that because, you know, one of the things that I've found, like, during this period of time, it does bring opportunities for people with, with different views on things to sort of, like, you have this Zoom meeting and you're sort of talking and you're figuring things out and, and how we're going to look at, you know, they talk about like this new normal. Well, I think it's the next normal. Well, like, you know, the seeds were there, but, you know, like you said, 
Well, you could tie your camel. It's different. You might be up in space, and how are you going to do that? Yeah. You know? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, wow. and, and this is correct. And so we have to think of new ways of doing things, be open to them, and also understand that our skill sets can be can be applied in a number of different ways. And I think that this is helping people to recognize that if you're a leader, you may be a leader in a particular part of the process, not a leader for everything. Uh-huh. You know, when it comes to, you know, I look at it very practically like in the business. When it comes down to tax time, the accountant and the CFO is the, are the ones who should be the leaders of getting that done. Uh-huh. And when it comes down to the design of a new thing, then the person in development, that person should be the one leading that aspect. So we all can take roles in being leader, and it helps move the whole thing forward. So we don't have to be caught up in our egos. And, and that's one of the things I find that people get caught up in their ego, taking things too personally. When, yes, you can understand, but sometimes we just have to let that go because it's really just, is it going to mean anything five minutes from now? In many instances, no. So I hold on to it. Let it go. You know, I like to... So those are some of the things I've learned. Uh By being a think tank. You know, do you find having this broader pool to draw from, has that been helpful to you to sort of like how you said, you know, step back and even like take some of the pressure? Because it's hard sometimes when you're doing something and you feel like... You're carrying it all on your shoulders, and it's like, well, is this going to happen, that going to happen? But has this helped you? I mean, you know, like go into this next phase of your your life. Well, it has, both in, the, in building the institute and also in my life. As far, as far as the institute is concerned, last December, well, 2019 was a, a transition period for us as well and that I started looking at, okay, we're going to deal with issues related to people's contemporary lives. So we sat down and discussed, and I, I with several of other people who are associated with the organization, and discussed, and we came up with a plan. And what, uh, last December, I released a, a, a medical fatwa. Now, a fatwa in, in Islamic faith is a, is a legal opinion or religious legal opinion on something. And so... I released an opinion on medical marijuana, Muslims using medical marijuana. Now, there's a general cultural um, understanding that anything that intoxicates, you're not supposed to use it. Well, we looked at that and said, well, that's true, but under certain circumstances, that rule doesn't work because it's not what you're using. You're not intentionally trying to intoxicate yourself. But if you take a medication and it, it, you know, and it has something there that causes you, uh, you know, intoxication of some type, you know, lightheadedness or those types of things, and, but the benefit of it overall is to help you heal, then it's okay. Mm-hmm. So these are the things I, I wrote a, a fatwa on that, and then I did, um, and you can go to um, YouTube because the Mecca Institute channel, we have that, some of the information is up, uh, but you can look at the videos that I did on medical marijuana and the benefits, the research that we did, all of that, so that Muslims can now utilize it if it's part of your process. If you have cancer, you have seizures, 
um, you know, you're dealing with other types of issues, you can now utilize it with the benefit of, you know, working along with your doctor, recognizing that you, because it's not an exact science, that you'll have to develop a dosage process until you find the right, you know, peak that works for you, then you can still use it. And then I explained in, in it as well that for myself, now, I, aspirin, I've never been able to take aspirin. Ibuprofen, I rarely had a chance to use. I remember using it a couple of times when I had dental, you know, work done, uh-huh. and the doctor would have me take, you know, 400 milligrams of ibuprofen for a day or two. Well, that was fine. But what happened is that a doctor, because of my arthritic condition and my hip, um, the doctor had me on a low dosage of ibuprofen. Well, after about a month, I had, it caused me ulcers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And then, and, and because it was at such a low dosage, I had learned that I was that it was a problem. I couldn't take it anymore. So then I went and I tried Tylenol, and Tylenol, when I take it, it makes me throw up. It doesn't work. So I had no other pain relief for my particular situation until I did research on medical marijuana. And I started with CBD oil, which helped with the soreness, but it didn't deal with the pain. Mm-hmm. So then I wanted to say, and I find that whenever I overexert myself or the inflammation is really high, you know, I've eaten something called inflammation, I take my CBD oils and then I'll take some THC. I usually a gummy bear, you know, mm-hmm. gummy bear. Mm-hmm. And I'll take one of those. And generally then I go sit my behind down and watch a movie or I go to bed and when I wake up, I'm pain-free. Mm-hmm. So... It's a process that I'm, you know, if you have certain circumstances, you should be able to find a better quality of life. And no ridiculous, you know, set in stone rules should prevent you from having a better quality of life. And, you know, and sometimes, because I know, I mean, you are preaching to the choir, too, because you, we had gotten to the point where we had gotten to, really, in some ways, Western medicines. And, and you have that, and they give you... I had the same issue with ibuprofen, and what they came up with was like the same thing, ibuprofen. I started to get acid reflux, and they gave me another thing, which to take for it, which later on it came out, it caused cancer. So finally, in expanding what I was looking for to find it, I also had found like that you can use CBD, and that helped with some of the pain that I was having. I mean, so there's all of these things that are doing it, and it's sort of like it sounds like, in some ways, you're also taking a, a look at things that we've taken for granted. Like somehow we've just accepted that this Western medicine is the way because marijuana gets you high. But it looks like you've taken it to the next step. Look at your overall health, and maybe there's a, a protocol using this that will help you. And that's correct. That's the case. I've, I've, um, in February of this year, I got an email from a lady who said that she had been suffering from pain for 15 years, and she came across our website and read the information and, you know, watched a couple of the videos and contacted her doctor who referred her to a a doctor who did marijuana treatment, and she got with him, and this was like in January, and in early February, she started taking the medication, you know, the doctor's prescribed way to do it. 
And she said after about a week, she had the first time she went to bed that evening in the morning, she woke up the first time in 15 years without pain. Mm. Mm-hmm. Wow. wow. So that made me feel very good that I did this, you know, out of talking about my own experience, but I was able to help someone else find the way, and they didn't feel uncomfortable because of what some social mores that that they had grown up with all their life. Mm-hmm. You know? So those kinds of things, and I know that I'm helping people, even though I've had a few people write and say, well, no, you're, you're doing wrong and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, well, that's your opinion. Thank you very much. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. But I know mm-hmm. that there are people who are, who are believing, who are, who are now not suffering and maybe even causing additional harm to their families because now they, have to, they don't have to be taken care of as the way that they were when they were suffering. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. So that's the way. And then also I did a thing on, um, you know, COVID and advising people to follow the medical experience. I was on ABC about two weekends ago on, um, what is it, What You Need to Know? Mm-hmm. And I was encouraging people, as I did with my fatwa during um, Ramadan, telling them to follow the medical advice. Don't congregate with a lot of people because Friday people want to congregate for prayers. No, don't do that. Even if you're having family events, stay, don't have large numbers of people together. Do the right things. Plan for your shopping trips. Do all these things. Avoid the possibility of getting sick. And if you do that, we'll all get through this. But pay attention. Don't get mad. You know, don't, don't get overwhelmed. If you have to go for a walk, prepare. Go out early in the morning when there's not a lot of people and go for a walk. You know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just try new ways of doing things. You can find a way. You can find a solution. And I, you know, I find myself sequestered here um, in my apartment quite a bit, but I do go out once a week and I plan. I write my grocery list. I know exactly where I'm going to go. I check on the online and, and look at the weekly ads, you know, all of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. there, and, I, and I'm out for about three hours usually on my shopping day, but I've gone by the drugstore, the grocery stores. If I have to stop by Target or something to pick up something, all of that is done in about three to four hours, and I'm done. Mm-hmm. But I'm prepared. I have my list, you know, all those things. So it's important that people prepare and protect themselves because mm-hmm. only thing you need is one exposure, and it could mean yep. your life or the life of mm-hmm. a loved one. Mm-hmm. Wow. You just said something which I thought was really interesting because, you know, back another time when we talked, it was the Muslim, the Islamic, the immigrant menace, you know, um, the occupant, you know, he had to travel ban. And we had people who were talking, if you were Muslim, they would talk about, um, you know, there, there were all these things that this was just like the, how, how things change to where now it's COVID. You know, yes. we don't hear people talking about immigration that much, although we know that people are still in cages along the border. Um, yes. How has your experience changed as, as, like, as like 
Trump has identified the next boogeyman, okay, and right now the boogeyman is COVID, and it's the Chinese, you know, the Chinese virus. What have you seen as far as being a Muslim, practicing your religion, and, and how that opinion has changed in the media from to where you had the Muslim ban and, you know, all these protests, uh, you know, this, these actions against people of Islamic faith to where now they're pushing up another thing. You know, now it's COVID. But there are some things that are still wrong under all of them. How do you see that it, it's changed, and how, how are you feeling it? The person that's in the uh, – well, let me say this first, not out of disrespect, but out of being able to maintain a, a level of – Honestly, with myself, I don't re- respond to the person who's in our in the the White House. Mm-hmm. Uh, I refer to him as forty five. He's the forty fifth okay. president, and that's what mm-hmm. I do. Um, mm-hmm. And I also notice his psychological process, how he woos the American public, is that he's a he's a mastermind of deflection. The magician. Watch my right hand. Don't don't worry what my left hand is doing. Mm-hmm. And that's his process. So what he does is he always brings forward something to get your attention focused on one thing. Then he's doing something else underhanded in another way, usually to help you know help benefit him monetarily or his family monetarily. So those are the kinds of things in which we have to look at. And so we're seeing him talk about certain aspects, but it's really a way to get your attention focused on that, and then he's doing something else. Uh, an example of, of this is that the, he's talking about doing things for the military, but yet he, t- he takes money to do other things from the military. For example, they were supposed to be building new homes and housing, and some of, I think, in Germany and a couple of other places around the world, because the housing was old and dilapidated, you know, dilapidated. And um, uh-huh. and he took that money to work to build his wall in the south, you know, along the border. Now those those families, and he talks about being, you know, supporting our military, but those families are now still still living in substandard housing. The deflection. Uh-huh. So he does it in a subtle way, and then many of those who, who are the GOP uh, members of the Senate in particular, but also in the House, they also, as you know, uh, support him in that. They're, they're accomplices in some of the things that he does. And, you know, and also in, in the, the, you can look at the COVID situation and the governors like in, in Florida, in Texas. Those people followed him, and who has more... COVID in New York City today. Thank you. Uh-huh. Okay. They, they were, he was screaming the blue states, the blue governors were doing the worst job and the blah, blah, blah. And now who has, who, who's dying more and have less resources to handle it but those southern states that he was, you know, who were, who were patting themselves on the back? Uh-uh. This is crazy. You know, as, as we used to say when we were kids, God don't like ugly. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. You, know, so, you know, so I just look at him as being, he, he, is a, he is really a, 
an, ex- an example of the worst of what America can be. Mm-hmm. Sure but is. we have others who can show and have shown us who the best Americans can be. Mm-hmm. And so we have to look at these things and, and balance them out. And that I, I am uh, prayerful that this election will change some things because as we look at what has happened just in 2020, I saw a cartoon today that said, that, you know, it showed everything in disarray, you know, and the husband was saying to the wife, you know, I thought 2020 was supposed to be clear vision, you know. <laughs> it was hilarious. But 2020 has been a very, it has been turmoil, you know, a lot of turmoil, and there's a lot of issues that are going on. But if you're able to have a sense of inner calm and to let the stuff that, you know, that try to take your attention and just look through the process, you can find that there's actually a lot of inner peace you can have within yourself and around you. So it's so important that people understand that because we're coming through that and that this election will be part of that process. And well, it's not just the election, but we look at the you know George Floyd situation. Mm-hmm. We look at the Brianna, uh, uh, I forgot uh, Brianna Taylor's situation. Mm-hmm. We look at the various situations, you know, different things that are going on. The way in which our black women legislatures and and mayors and senators and stuff are being attacked, not just because of gender, because of their race too. We see all these things coming to a head, but yet each one of these women, each of these people, their families who have suffered because of the, you know, the murders and the injustice, the injustice that they've faced, they still have a great sense of inner calm about them. And that to me means that you have to not let it overthrow you and make you crazy. Now, you know, you settled in Chicago, and it seems like Chicago is one of his favorite places to pick on. And it's all happening there. I mean, you know, you still have a disproportionate number of African-American and other people of color who are getting COVID. You have economic disparities. And, you know, he's talking about trying to send in troops. You have a black mayor who also happens to be lesbian and very open. I mean, so, I mean, and of course, you settled there, and now that you're there, how do you feel? I mean, you're like right in the the epicenter. Is it good to be there that you can, it gives you a vision on things, or how does it feel for you? Well, um, I see a lot of the things that are going on here. And part of the problem in terms of the police situation, particularly on the south side and west side, is that it's an economic issue. Many people are, mm-hmm. you know, those who had little have less or have nothing almost. And so it's causing them to, to try to deal with how, to, how are they going to survive. But also the other aspect of it is that, We've, you know, the murders, for example, you know, these, these, mur- these, these the, the increase, I think, 140% increase or several hundred percent mm-hmm. increase over the last five years uh, in terms of murders. 
And I was having a conversation with one of my neighbors. We happened to be masked up and talking. Mm-hmm. Hey, <laughs> Walking only from the supermarket it. one day, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, he said to me, he said, well, you know, this black-on-black crime thing is really a problem. And I told him, said, now, look, I want you to understand something. I agree with you that there should be no black-on-black crime, but that's almost an impossibility, I think, because there's whatever group you're in, there's crime on that group by those people of that group. So we can't get away from it 100%. I said, but we have to also look at where do some of the the things come from? I said, show me where black people are manufacturing arms. There was silence. I said, so that means that the arms are coming in from somebody else. Somebody else is bringing them. And I said, but look, if you go down to Tennessee, Kentucky, Missouri, all these places, they don't even have rules. You can go, go to a gun show and buy as many guns as you want. So somebody's bringing those guns. I said, also, where are the drug? Where are black people producing, you know, hard, hard drugs? Where are they growing the stuff? Where are all those things coming from? So the bottom line is to get them to think that just because it's a problem doesn't mean that it's those people who are causing the problem. They may be promoting it because of economics. That's the way they can make money and other types of things. We can't put that past the human nature but they're not necessarily the cause of everything because there's always cause and effect. Mm-hmm. And so we need to stop being so easily swayed that these people are so more, so powerful that they're able to develop these things and then do all of this stuff. No, it's a process. So let, let, let's, let's step back a little bit and see how we can look at this with a different frame of mind. And that's what I encourage people to do is although you see something as a bad, understand how did that bad get there? How did it become bad? Did those people have the ability to make it bad? Mm-hmm. And when we do that, we, then we can say, okay, well, then part of the problem it may be crooked police. It may be crooked politicians. It may be, you know, the, 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 mm-hmm. the criminal element, you know, gangsters and stuff. So it's not just black, the average you know, I, I refer to as Muslims, you know, the, the Mohammed and Fatima uh, Muslim or the John and Jane, you know, T black person that's doing all this stuff. Mm-hmm. It's not them. Mm-hmm. So we, well, we know, have to stop looking at ourselves as being the negative and look at what are the negatives within our group. And you know, I think that I, I don't, I'm not, I'm sure that you saw it here when they marched on the state capitol because they were so just like disturbed about being war- told that they had to stay home and wear masks. And this is like, yeah. and all white people, they were armed with assault rifles and stuff. They went right into the state capitol, you know, all armed up and everything. But then you look and you see that some of the protests, that are black and brown people who aren't armed and they're getting, you know, treated like, you know, they're, they're criminals, they're getting tear gassed, all this stuff is happening. And it's sort of like you want to say to people like, well, what's the difference? Okay. And what would, what would happen if these black people showed up to do this march, exercising their, their constitutional right to wear, bear arms and marching down the street It'd be a bloodbath. And, you know, and sometimes, like, it's, if a black person has a gun, there's, 
that lens that some people are going like a black person with a gun, bad, crime. White person with a gun, First Amendment rights. And it's like, how do we get people to have a conversation beyond, to get them beyond seeing that way? Well, my personal way of looking at it is, why do they need a gun in the first place? Mm -hmm. And generally, people arm themselves because of a fear, and many times an unfounded fear that they have, because they believe someone's going to take something from them that may not actually be true. No one may have any interest in what you have. So guns are are just a... a, um, a manifestation of some other issues, psychological issues that are going on there. And I think what happens is that when people talk, too often they talk apart, you know, talk over each other or waiting to have a response just when the other person finishes. They're not listening. They're not hearing. They're not thinking. They're not evaluating what's being said. Because if you say something to me, Michelle, I should be, out of, if I'm really thinking about what you're saying, then I, there should be a pause. I refer to it as a pregnant pause for me to think about what you said before I come up with the response. And then I can respond to you in kind with a very thoughtful response. Or I can ask more questions to then delve into your, your statement more, you know, so I can get more clarity I can understand, I can learn to empathize with what you're saying. There are other ways in which I can find solidarity with you, and that in return helps you understand me better too. Mm-hmm. And though we may leave that conversation with still difference of opinions, we're not hating each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the problem stems from. We're too quick to jump to hate or allow people to tell us to hate another because we're different. Mm-hmm. And this is where I find a problem. And that's, that cuts across religion, economics, politics, all those different things, and even in love. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, I wanted to talk to you, because you are a spiritual person. You see things. And and just like what you just finished saying about that listening and thinking about it. And I know, as, since all of this has gone down, as a black woman, sometimes um, I go into the suburbs. In fact, I was telling somebody there's this one place where I go and do some, some work tempor- uh, you know, part-time, and I'm the only black person who goes in there. And when I got ready to turn the corner, here are – Somebody had put up all these little American flags, and I went in, and there's conversations and stuff, and there's something that, you know, that, that, that feeling, you know, like, oh, I feel like I'm under attack. I feel like these people are harboring something against me. And that's just me as a black woman. Mm-hmm. You are an African-American man. Okay, we already know this, that you're a big guy. You're a Muslim. Do you feel that, that sort of like the strange sort of tension? And how do we acknowledge that and not make us, because I mean, I'll tell you, I had one day where, you know, it was like this, this, this non-black woman wanted to go all caring on me, and for a heartbeat, 
I was ready to go there with her. And I said, no, that's not me. And I didn't. But, you know, and I know if I'm doing it, how do you, how do you, do you feel that? And what do you say to people when, to help them, first of all, acknowledge this microaggression that they might be feeling, but how to deal with it? Well, I'll have to say to you that each circumstance calls for a different set. I always say that if you're going to win a war, you have to have a diversity of, of arsenal to deal with it. And sometimes a smile and a hello and can you help me or I'm not understanding something will disarm a person because it puts them in a different position in which they then have to decide if they're going to be human or not. Mm-hmm. So I call upon their better person to do that. In other instances, the, just the tone will help. And then they'll say, oh, excuse me, are you speaking to me? Mm. So it changes the, 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 the tone, the atmosphere that's there. Now, I know when I go in, I can, I, you know, you always survey the situation. You go like, now, what kind of mess are they going to try today? <laughs> I know. <laughs> and so you don't, but, but you don't let it overwhelm you, you know. You, you, you stay cognizant of your presence, cognizant of what other people are doing, and you go and do what you need to do. Now, I find that when I go into a, a business and I need something, I always ask them, hey, I'm new here, and, and I'm not certain where you keep such and such. And that usually allows one of them to go with me, so that means now I'm not someone who's going to do any harm to them, but I'm a customer like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Even though I can look at the signs and figure out exactly where I'm looking for, I'm looking for tape, but then I go in that section, you know, office supplies, mm-hmm. and I'm looking for that. I can do that, but in order to allay their fears, I, I, I ask them to help me. And it's all in the ask. Mm-hmm. And then, I, you know, we settle the, the, the transaction and I move on. Mm-hmm. And also what it does is that the next black person that comes in there, they're not so on edge. So it helps a lot of times in those ways. And it's not that, every, you know, it works every time. Because I've had a couple of situations where I've had to say to people, excuse me, but I don't think that you're understanding what I'm asking for. You're not understanding what my, my quest is. So and then that, and that also sets, sets a stage for us to get some clarity there. It's not confrontational. It's just getting some clarity. Uh-huh. And if I find that it's that, it's that you know, negative, I can always leave. Uh-huh. I'll just tell them, I said, well, excuse me, but I think that you're not willing to, off, you know, as a customer, you're not willing to do whatever it is I'm looking for, so I'll go someplace else. Uh-huh. And depending on the number of people that are there, there, there are some people who, are, who will even offer, even that, you know, you go outside, they'll come out and say, look, that, that guy really is not that, you know, great, blah, blah, blah. But if you want to just go down here to such and such place and you can find it there, you know, or something like that. So there are people that are around who may not have the ability to speak out at the moment, but they can recognize when things are wrong. Mm-hmm. And we just have to let that be. 
And God blesses us in that way. And if it's not, you weren't supposed to be there in the first place. And 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 as Maxine Waters, I love her. Yesterday, I think, or two days ago, was her birthday. She was eighty-two years old, and I love her for one thing that she that she taught me, and that is reclaiming my time. You know, and growing up, I always understood that black women's wisdom was very important. I don't don't misunderstand me because the black men's wisdom is well too, okay? Mm-hmm. But there, there's black women, women wisdom that helps because many times black women have been in situations, very compromising situations, where they had to find themselves, you know, had to work work their way through. So I understood how to be able to discern what you need to do. And then black male magic, I've referred to black male magic, they also have ways of doing things. But some of those things have nothing to do with interacting with people per se, but it may be about how do you maintain a certain standard in your community? How do you work with the other men to help do these certain types of things and stuff like that? And so it helps um, in many ways. So you just have to be aware that that we all have something that we have brought with us as I refer to from the slave mother's dream, mm-hmm. and that we all have something that we can gain from it because once a slave and slave no more is a transition that 200 years ago wasn't even in existence. Mm-hmm. So we have to look at those things. We have to look at our history. We have to look at the progress we've made. And it doesn't mean that we stop anywhere. We just have to keep on pushing forward. And as I look today and see more and more beautiful black children and children of all different races and colors and things, it reminds me of two things. One, that nine out of every ten people, human beings in the world, are a person of color. So that means I'm in part of the majority. I'm not a minority. Uh And two, that this world is big enough to take care of all of us if we have goals that are considerate of others. You know, I'm glad that you brought up Maxine Waters, and I think of her, and I think of those aunts and grandmothers that, you know, and and those women who you grew up with. And I remember how someone said, like, when you look in the mirror and we see that we're still here, we were brought over here to be like, a commodity to be used and thrown away, but we're still here. So those skills, like you're saying, you know, are there. You know, the skills to to deal with this, you know, I know what people go like, well, how much longer do we have to, why should we have to go in and, and, you know, ask a question of them so that they treat us? But we have those skills and we know how to, to deal with people and how to, handle these situations and it's almost like we need some of that auntie magic you know at some point to remind us to remind us that we know how to handle this you know we know how to handle this you know that is no i was just going to say that i was talking with a friend of mine i grew up with um lane and i we went to high school together and um, Lane was a, a, Lane is a genius. Um, she was a black young lady at the age of 17, took the SAT in 1968. And she 
became num the one I think she took the December SAT uh -huh. in nineteen sixty eight. She came number one in the nation. Uh, wow. Young black woman, young girl, mother was a domestic. She had four hundred and ninety seven universities and colleges contact her giving to give her a full ride. Uh, well, she she, um, she retired as a, psych, a psychologist a few years ago, and we were talking earlier this uh, year in March after COVID started. We were just checking in with each other, and we were talking. And I said, you know, she was saying, you know, Sid, you know, my name's Sydney. She said, you know, Sid, you go out there, and, and I was looking in the mirror, and I looked at myself. And, you know, I remember, you know, um, there was a lady as we were growing up as teenagers. She had a a um, her mother's cousin and she dressed like Mary uh, Mary Lou Bethune Mary Lord uh -huh. Bethune you know she had uh -huh. that type of 40 dress in the with a cummerbund and all of that <laughs> and she said you know I turned into her <laughs> and I'm like yep you're absolutely correct because we can look at our our siblings and our relatives and see that they oh, that's you know so and so is Uncle Joe now you know, so and so is Uncle Steve. So and so is Aunt So and so now. So we we pick up those spirits and we carry them out. So, like you said, we have to go back and remember those people and the good things that they brought to us and taught us. And those things are still alive uh -huh. Uh -huh. and usable. Uh -huh. So I'm just saying, you know, sometimes, and this is one of the things that I'm hoping, and I'm, in the, and I still have a lot of hope. I'm starting to see more young people who are coming out of the the madness of the '90s and the early 2000s, um, who, and I say that who are who who, who understand that they're a continuation of who we will be as we transition into our into the next dimension. They will be taking over, and I'm happy to say that I'm glad that I'm that there's going to be some who's going to be leading them forward. We still got a bunch of knuckleheads. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, but we got we do we have some amazing young leaders. Uh -huh. We have some amazing ones, and when I go to the store, sometimes a young man or a young lady will say, "No, you go first, store." They hold the door for me. Things that we were taught to do for the older people, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? And so it, it sparks a thing, or sometimes it gives you opportunity to talk with them or to chat with them just for a few minutes, and it helps remind us of ourselves 40, 50 years ago, and you still see it today in them. So it means that we're not done yet. Mm -hmm. As Maya Angelou said, and still we rise. And still we rise. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, now, you've brought up black women. Okay. Yes. Why? <laughs> Were you surprised? Or or when, they, when you know, and I'll tell you, I always liked Kamala Harris. I always liked her. I've read her book, you yeah. know, and I like it. But it's sort of like this thing like, is she black enough, you know, or is she black? I mean, and I had someone who said, well, you know, don't say she's black. She's Jamaican and Asian. I'm going like, well, you know, she's black. And our Jamaican, I think they're black. You know, I looked at her parents, you know, and if you go by 
but it shouldn't matter as if she's very qualified. But why are we still having this conversation about people being black enough? You want my most honest opinion on that? I sure do. I sure do. People feel feel that they've lost something. They they feel they're losing something, but blackness is not something that you can hold on to. Blackness is an essence that's lived. Mm-hmm. So you can't. You, it, it's, blackness is not tangible. Black practices are tangible, but blackness is not tangible. You get my point. Mm-hmm. That so the, they're trying to hold on hold on to something that they can't hold on to because. When the person identifies as being black, then that's who they're living their lives out of blackness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, Kamala has said that. Her mother recognizes she had two black girls she was raised in Oakland. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She went to Howard University, okay, in a black city of Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. She's, she belongs to a black sorority. Yes, she does. Mm-hmm. So what else identifies black women in their blackness but many of those things in which she has already done, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. has lived? So she is black as I need to know that she's black. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, because you stop and you, and you look and you wonder and, you know, it's like, well, I mean, she is, you know, and I just sort of, I mean, and there were there are a lot of really great candidates, and there were a lot of great women who were in the running, you know, who they talked about. I mean, but yeah. I still see them as being leaders, you know. They are, all of them were. All of them yeah. are. <laughs> mm-hmm. All of, I mean, you know, they're still leaders, and they're still going to keep things going as we move forward. I also sometimes feel like, you know, what people don't recognize is like this is a transitional time. You know, yes. Trump and his age, I mean, they're dying out. That was, I think that in some ways it was sort of like this is their last hurrah, you know. We didn't let that black man be man. We got to get back and get our stuff. We had a black president, so then we put somebody in there who, who stands up for everything that they did back in the day. But you know what? They're dying out. And That's right. The next generation is coming up, and that next generation is black, brown, queer, Asian. They're coming up, and so it's going to happen. Yeah. So it's sort of like you sort of see that and to try to get people like, you know, recognize what time we're in instead of worrying about, is she black enough? You know, that doesn't do anything, you know. Deflection. It's deflection again. That's all it is, deflection. You know, I've, I've two things about that. I've, I, one, I want to say about um, Kamala, I've read some of these things about how she was so bad on black men and things like that, but there's this guy who has a video, and I, I'm sorry I don't have it to, to uh, give it to you, but he, he looks at that question about her and things of this nature, and one of his responses is that when she was Attorney General of California, how could she be, in ter- you know, actually putting incarcerating black people, black men in particular, when um, she's attorney general? 
And he says, this, let me give you the, an example, a metaphor for it. You're trying to say that she's, she's like the CEO of Target and she's doing price checking on items. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. She had 5,000 attorneys under her jurisdiction. And you can't have control over 5,000 folks. You, you're going to have renegades. You just have to find ways to, to reel them in. So maybe those, some of those people are, but it was not her that was doing that directly because the information I know, I, I, was, I wasn't living out there at the time, but I know several people was there. She started programs so that when people were black boys or black teenagers and young men were being arrested, she said, look, either you go to school under this program or you go to jail. Mm-hmm. And a number of those folks who came in that program wound up going, getting their educations and are now fulfilling their lives as, as productive adults today. And I think that when she started, the other guy said when she started, there was 147 people who were um, uh, incarcerated for a marijuana charge. She said when she left to become attorney general, there was 35. So that's 110 mm-hmm. people left. Mm-hmm. In five years. So she must have been doing something to make the change. Mm-hmm. So all of that stuff is deflection. It's trying to keep people, keep your mind on BS that has nothing to do with what's going on today. There was someone who was on NPR who who was there, and he was talking, and he made that same comparison, like the programs, you know, they talk about that, that there are programs and how pe- some people are, are thriving people, like I said, are getting their education, they're doing that, and he said, and there are ways that they're able to find out about some things that other people before just got swept under the rug. So I think that there's a lot that people need to to know and to look at and, you know, like you said, get off of it and recognize what time it is and how do we move forward because we have to move forward. You know, the, you right. know it's, it's, it's very clear like I said, the song said the change is going to come. The change is here. And, and in some ways, it was ushered in by this COVID-19. So, That's right. Mm-hmm. Now, do you, you remember Curtis Mayfield, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Kurt, before Curtis Mayfield died, I think he died in 1999, he did an album that was a wonderful album. And I think if you go back and listen to that album, he was very – very, um, he was looking into the future. And I think if you go back for some of the songs that I remember from that album, um, really resonate with me for today. Sometimes, you know, when you're walking down the street and then that song pops up in the back of your head, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. some of those songs come to me from time to time. Now I wanted to, uh, to also say to you about black women that of those black women who were, in, in the selection, in the committee to be selected from, which Kamala came out of, a number of them, I hope that they, they will fill positions in Biden's cabinet as well. Mm-hmm. Now, um, my personal, you know, now I'll tell you my own personal prejudices at some point, um, uh-huh. but I just think that Susan Rice, I think she would be a wonderful Secretary of State. Yeah. Because people, mm-hmm. national people love her. They love her. I said, I would love to see Stacey, Stacey Abrams as head of human uh-huh. rights, you know, human services, health and human services. Uh-huh. I'd like to see Tammy Duckworth head of Veterans Affairs. Oh, I'd like man. to see, I would love to see Miss um, Warren as, as head of the Treasury. 
you where they need hands out. <laughs> Uh-huh. Um, I mean, uh, you know, there are other people and things like that. Now, I've, I've thought about Ms. Um, Dennings in terms of uh, uh, Attorney General, but I'm not certain if that would be the best selection. I'm not, you know, I think that he has the right to look at other people, but I think that there will be ways in which we can change this police uh, strategy in this country, change those police unions, because they're, they're the ones who are really the problem. Uh-huh. It's the unions protecting the the, 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 the ones who are, who are doing all the harm. Because I know several people who are police officers, and I, I respect them highly because they're, you know, they do their job. And I know that there are times when knuckleheads are out there and they got to deal with the knucklehead. But in mm-hmm. most instances, they do the job to help people. And when you go into their, in, you know, neighborhoods where they're on their beats, the people love them. Mm-hmm. Because they're part of the community. So that's why I'm saying there's a difference between those police officers who do their job well and those who are out there who are causing problems. And I like, I'm, and these unions are the ones that are protecting those bad, quote unquote, bad apples or rotten apples. And we got to do something about these unions. Mm-hmm. So I think that she would be great in helping do it because since she was a police chief, she knows what those unions do. And I and I think that that she can cut them off at the knees. Uh huh. Uh huh. So we got enough. We got a lot of powerful people out here, and we just have to utilize them well. And it's not going to happen in one thing. I was talking with some young people uh, a couple of weeks ago online, and actually, I'll, I'll speak about the one when uh, when George Floyd was murdered. Uh-huh. And the people, uh-huh. I, some of these young people online were talking about, well, yeah, you know, this these corporations, they'll you know, they, they loot and do this type of thing. They'll replace it and everything else. I said, let me explain something to you. I said, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, the same thing happened in Detroit and other D.C. and other places, and they wound up having food deserts that lasted 20 and 30 years. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I said, so you don't understand that now that they finally have a drugstore nearby and they got a supermarket nearby, you destroy it. I said, it's summertime now. And they can get back and forth to get to who I said, but are you going to be there in the dead of winter with five feet of snow helping them carry their, their groceries back and forth mm-hmm. when they got to travel by, by bus five miles to get, get to the nearest grocery store? Are you going to be there to help them when they need to get to their, to their medical appointment? Because now they got to travel 10 miles to the nearest doctor? I said, that was a problem that happened before, and if we don't learn from it, then we're doing the same thing over again to ourselves. And if you want to, and then one young guy said something to me, and I had, you know, I had to just say, bring it to the thing. I said, okay, you want to play that? Let me show you something. <laughs> I told him, I said, if you're so bad, why aren't you out in the white suburbs tearing their mess up? Mm-hmm. The silence was deafening. Wow. But I had, I had a young lady, well, actually a couple of people after send me a little note. They say, you know, I, I'm glad you had a chance to say what you had to say. It makes me think about this differently now. So we got, you know, we just have to get out there and, and fight the good fight, do the best we can, reclaim our time when we can, <laughs> and and be safe, you know, and and tell young people, I, you know, I find the best benefit is that don't talk down to young people, talk with young people, mm-hmm. and set the standards. If they use profanity, I tell them, excuse me, young man, young lady, I don't listen to people who use profanity. You can, you can find better words than that. 
So if we're going to have a conversation, you got to find better words. Some of them will stalk off because they don't have better words. Well, I can't help you. But those who do this, well, I'm sorry, and then, they, and then they explain themselves. So I have not changed, I have not talked down to them. I've asked them to come up to a standard. And many you of them know, can meet it. You know, or you, you were talking about one of the things that, you know, with the COVID, and I've, I've been working on a couple of things that are looking at rapid response. Some of the things that you see are things that have, like you said, what goes around, comes around, because there are still food deserts, and particularly when you look at why communities of color are so heavily impacted by COVID, you see that there are still food deserts. Um, I think education has come up a lot where you have, like, if not only some of these schools, like I say, well, they couldn't go online if they wanted to because they don't have, in some urban areas, don't have Internet access. The kids might not have computers. I mean, so they don't have that part. And you know that our kids have been behind as far as in education. You know, many places that, that, like you said, the doctor is a long ways away, you know, and how to get there so that there are many things that have been plaguing our community, which COVID has just made exasperated, exasperated, which is why you see such a percentage are African-American people of color, indigenous and poor people are dying from it. And now it's starting to ease its way out into suburbia and into um, rural areas. But we still haven't resolved some of those issues like the food deserts, like black people having businesses in their own communities and other black people, you know, doing it. So here you are, you know, you're in this transitional phase of your life. What Do you see any of those that are, are like really near and dear to your heart that in these wonderful years you have ahead of you, I say a good 40, 50, you know, I'm, I'm putting it out there. You're going to be around, you know, triple digits. Do you see something that you really want to, that is near and dear to your heart that you would like to see addressed or tackled a change made. Oh, yes. I want to see more black people have their own businesses and everything. See, one of the problems that happened in, in, as a kid growing up, I, you know, I grew up in a black uh, business family. My father was a postman, but my mother ran our, our cleaners. We had a you know, family cleaner. We actually had two family cleaners. And every Saturday morning I'd get up and go and shine shoes and make deliveries and come home with $10 worth of quarters in my pocket, you know? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> We're talking back uh-huh. to the early 60s now. So, uh-huh. that you know, I had that entrepreneurial um, thing in me. And so I want to, you know, people, when integration happened, people ran off and left their own businesses, forgetting that integration meant you had access not to give up. And black people gave up their own businesses in their own neighborhoods, and they wound up dying out, particularly after the riots came about. They got burned out, and they didn't have insurance. They couldn't be built. So I want to see more black people building their own businesses. And one of them, I was talking with a young man a little while ago, and I'll just throw this out there. Anybody who's interested, I, I'm certain you can make a living out of it. My uh, youngest brother, is, um, what he does is he has a delivery service. And, what, and, and, you know, the Amazon, 
and mm-hmm. UHL, I mean DHL, and those different um, companies that that ship packages. Well, their pilots fly into various places around the country. So, you know, he's in Denver, and he has a contract with one of those airlines, and he picks up the pilots when they come in around 6 o'clock in the morning, then around 8 in the evening takes them back when they're flying back with their load to take back east. And he makes $50,000 a year doing that. Uh So we have to start looking at new ways of doing things so that we can have a day job and still do a, a little job on the side, then we can build our business as well. We have to start looking at ways of doing that. Um, if you live in a place that has a food desert and you have a, a group of guys that have some cars, then why not set up delivery services where you pick up people twice a day, you'll take them out to the grocery store, wait for two hours, let them get their shopping, then bring them back home. They pay you a certain amount of money. It's the Uber. Uh-huh. Utilizing the yeah. same thing. You can make enough cash doing that. If you want a five-day-a-week job and you make 10 or 15 runs a week and each person you can take four people and each one paying you $15, $20, how much is that a week? Uh-huh. How much is that clean money? You understand what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And there's a whole yeah. bunch of folks that they need that. So I'm just saying that there are ways of making money that doesn't have to have you go, going to working for somebody else, and you can hire somebody else to be the accountant mm-hmm. to handle your tax stuff. You know, somebody who's just coming out of school to be, in, you know, to be an accountant, you hire them to do the work. That makes you legit. It makes you rich. Mm-hmm. It, at least it gives you the opportunity to become richer. Now, mm-hmm. I saw a thing a little while ago. Um, this is a, I think about two years ago. There's a black group of plumbers out in Los Angeles, and they had a contract with the state, well, with Los Angeles, and I think also with the state of California to do electrical work, you know, like along the freeways and stuff like that. And they were being harassed by the police because they were saying that these guys, and they were saying, well, y'all don't have licenses and stuff, but they were licensed with the state. They wound up suing the the police um, for harassment and they stop bothering them. But the thing is that if you have the, the know-withal and the wherewithal, get your state license and open up a business because they have to have a certain number of contracts, not that they're set out as minority contracts, but they need to have a diversity being shown. So there are opportunities that's waiting for you if you can fill the spot. Too often things are given to other folks by default. So there are opportunities out here, but think bigger, think broader, ask questions. Uh-huh. Go down to the, you know, when they have, so you see something in the paper say that they're having an opening for a new kind of thing, take your time, get, put on a suit, put on a suit, or as they say, put on your good Sunday clothes and go down to the <laughs> meeting. <laughs> uh-huh. You may be surprised what opportunities that could be there. And, you know, my brother, when he first started, my youngest brother, when he first started, this was back in the late 70s. Before cell phones started, he went to one of those meetings where the, the cell, you know, when they had the, the pay phones along the freeways, mm-hmm. he went to one of the meetings of one at, in, in uh, Indiana, I think it was, and he went to one of the meetings there, and he was interested in doing that. Well, he met a guy there who wound up, he got to know him, he showed up, you know, he went to like four or five meetings, the guy there said to him, he said, you're interested? And he said, yeah, I am. But I don't have the money. He says, well, don't worry about that. The man sent him up with his first bank of phones. He paid him back. 
And by the time my brother left 15 years later, he was averaging $1,500 a month per pay phone, and he had 10 mm-hmm. banks of phones. Mm-hmm. Wow. But the guy thought he was interested because he kept showing up at the meetings and paying attention. So that so the white guy, maybe to help assuage his feelings or whatever, I don't know. <laughs> Mm-hmm, he gave mm-hmm. us, you know, he gave enough money to do set up a loan for him to to do that, and my brother paid him off, and he was on from there. He wanted, he made enough money that he put his two two children he had enough money for them to go to college, and since they were very good students, they wanted to get any scholarships. And when they came out of college, they had their own trust funds, so black kids can have it too if their parents work and think through the project. That's why I like Doctor um, Boyce Watkins. Mm-hmm. We can be, we can have money. I'm not saying everybody's going to be rich. It's just like the black folks who out hooping hard about we're all kings and queens. And I asked them, I said, well, if everybody was kings and queens, who was the serfs and all those other folks? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But well, you know, the thing is that we can, we can have better wealth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, like right now, and and you and it's a way of looking at the problems and challenges instead of going like like you were saying like. Well, if Uber won't come in your neighborhood, maybe you start your Uber. But instead of looking at the problems and challenges and seeing it as opportunities to fill that niche, to start your business, and, you know, you're supporting your community, you're employing yourself and possibly others, but, you know, to not sort of sit back and go like, oh, woe is me. You know, what are the opportunities that are coming that are there? And maybe it means, like you said, you get a little hustle. Maybe you have to to get family members to help you. Each each of them put in twenty dollars till you got two hundred to go where you can buy your cart to do whatever it is you're going to do. But look at that. We have that imagination. We have been that creative in the past, and it's still there. It's still in that that ancestral memory that you know to be entrepreneurs. That's right. I'm going to throw something else out here. Now, my mother taught me something. Now, this is the genius of older people, and if you pay attention, if you sit down and listen sometimes, you'll learn a lot. Um, you know, remember the Million Man March in 1995? Mm-hmm. I was in D.C., and I said, well, I told my mother, I said, hey, look, I'm going to um, get a booth and sell items, you know, water, juices, things like that. And she said, okay, well, if you're going to get a booth, can I send something down for you to sell? And I said, sure. So two of my brothers were coming down for the march, and they brought down three duffel bags full of shell peanuts. And my mother had bought, you know, the, the paper bags and used a little Pyrex cup and put, uh, you know, two, um, like 18, uh, 18, whatever it was, the measurement into the, the bag. And she said, sell mm-hmm. these bags for a dollar. She had sent me 300 bags. I sold out of every bag of peanuts she sent me. Wow. I didn't do that well with what I wanted to sell. Mm-hmm. And so I was talking to her, and she said, when, I talked, when my brothers gave her the money, she called me. She said, thanks for the money. <laughs> I said, okay. I said, but how did you know that was the thing? She says, when people go to events like that, they're standing around listening to the events. They want little stuff that they want to chew on, gum, mint, peanuts, those kinds of things. If they get hungry, they go off and then buy a meal somewhere. And she said, if you had told me earlier, I would have told you to get you a bunch of Cub Scouts and Girl Scouts 
Well, this is the Millie Man's Market. Get you a bunch of, boy, of Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts uh-huh. and team them up. One carries the stuff that you're going to sell. The other one takes the money. And if anybody tries to do something, the one with the money run one way and the kids with the stuff run the other. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And wow. if you had done that out there with all those people, I could have made $10,000, $20,000 that day. Wow. You understand? Yeah. So sometimes mm-hmm. it's just being innovative to do something different. And she said, yeah, you paid, you know, just a dollar for a thing, and you and each each boy, for everything they sell, give them a quarter. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You could have boxes of stuff that were gone. You would probably left it with nothing. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You know, there's nothing wrong with a little hustle, you know, and to teach kids about doing that, you know, that to do that, that it's okay. Make that, you know, make it and then do something with it. So you're retired, but I know you're not done. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're definitely not done. <laughs> so, and now that you're closer to me, what can I expect to see you doing? Well, for right now, for the next 18 months, I've dedicated myself to continuing to build out Mecca Institute because I'm in the process now of monetizing our website so that mm-hmm. we're producing products for people um, on our website so that we can mm-hmm. start doing that. Because like I said, God bless a child that has their own. Mm-hmm. And so we've been developing. I'm, the next, over the next year, I'll be producing five different products that I will be selling on our website or, well, Mm. related. It won't actually be our website, but it will be a related website that will help. The money made from them will then fund the institution. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm working on a book now, and that should be coming out early next year. Uh, Talked to my publisher, so I've submitted some materials, and they got the editor looking at it now, so I'll know in about a month what things I'll need to do. But they said there's enough here to it should be enough here for a book or just about a whole book. So no, I'm waiting like a to, memoir you know, or what? Well, a memoir, but it's, it's probably going to be, cover a couple of different sections. You know, my life as a, a black, early life as a black man, uh, my life of, as a, a black gay man, and then my life as a, an openly gay mom. Mm. So it, mm-hmm. you know, sort of covered in there some other books that I, that I have in me too. Mm-hmm. But that will be part of the, um, the, you know, those are the things I've submitted to them because I've been writing all along mm-hmm. uh, on a variety of different subject matters. So we'll see what they come up with. Because I need guidance in that. I'm not a publisher, so I need guidance mm-hmm. how, to, how to shape it properly so we can get some sales in here. You know, this will help take care of me as I get older, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm still mm-hmm. I'm still still looking for that that island where I'm going to go and and live part of the year on, on the island somewhere. Uh, hey, and I'll be right there with you. I'll be right it's okay. There with you. you know, I'll tell you something. People say, "Well, I said, where do you see a son? I said, "An island somewhere." You know, yeah, white sandy beaches, nice warmth. You know, uh, I'll come back periodically, but hey, we'll have that on. And we'll have a think tank. You know, we we're just not going to go there and kick off our shoes and do nothing. We'll be talking and thinking. How's that? <laughs> That's right. Now I got a friend who's working on um, 
that we need to start looking, black people in America need to start looking at ways and places they can go when they can retire, just like we're talking about. And it's not that difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, you just need to know the things you need to know to do that. Now, a couple, when I talked to you last time, I think I had just come back from being in, in Vietnam and South China, I think at that time. Yeah. And um, I was able to live there. I'm talking about, a, a, I lived in a, a townhouse apartment, mm-hmm. uh, had a maid come in twice a week. I was about, from the, my apartment door to the beach, I was about five-minute walk to the beach. And I had to cross this huge, you know, like this eight-lane main street. So mm-hmm. that was what took about two of those minutes to get to the beach. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I, and so in the morning, I would go over there and, and do my walk. I would do like a two-and-a-half-kilometer walk in the morning with my exercise. And sometimes in the, in the early evening, I'd go down and, you know, lay on the beach, sometimes get in the water, that kind of thing. And it was good. And for less than $700 a month included my, my rent, my food, and everything, the quality of life, cheaper than it was to live here in the States. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people lived, speaking of, people don't understand English is the, is the language of the world today. So many places you go to, there are a lot of people who speak English. You don't have to, I mean, I'm, I'm a polyglot, so I do have some language skills, but I'm just saying that, you know, I speak Chinese and Arabic, but the thing is that you can go to other places, and there are people who speak your language. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to be, you don't have to speak Vietnamese, you don't have to speak Chinese, you don't have to speak, you know, Thai or anything like that. And you can still live a quality life much cheaper than you live in here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And most of the doctors and hospitals, there, these people have been trained in U.S. hospitals. So you're getting excellent medical care. In many instances, better new facilities, all kinds of things. So, you know, you can have, live a lot a lot better life, better quality of life, and everything that you want, you can get just like you get here, you'll get there. Sometimes you have to take European substitutes because Europeans sell stuff there too, you know. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. Your scotch may not be from a a distillery in the States, it may be actually from Scotland, you know, but that's okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, because last year I tell people I've gotten such, you know, with other countries that you can live nicely in and better than here, you know, and maybe there's one or two things that, like you said, but they aren't really, they're inconveniences. It's not like, you know, we're talking to where you don't have indoor plumbing. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like. That's you know, right. So That's are, right. You know, I mean, so, there, yeah, there are compromises that, that you would have to make, but it's not that huge. But I know that many people, and I think particularly I'm surprised at how many people in – I'm finding more African-Americans now who are traveling outside of what you'd say is their comfort zone. But there's a lot of people, oh, no, nobody would speak language. Say, Everybody speaks English, you know. Everybody right. speaks English. And, and you can pick up another language yourself, you know, which there's nothing sure. wrong with that too, you know. Because why we only feel that we have to speak English when people come here from other countries and they speak multiple languages, and some countries, that's just a given. So, I mean, you can pick one up, and in the meanwhile, you can get by with English. You know, so, that's right. But you, but you can't go. And also, you know, see, I was going to say that also, 
I just learned that Amazon is all over the world. So if you need something, you can just get on the computer and, and order, and it may come in. It won't come in from someplace in the states. It may come in from India mm-hmm. or Indonesia. It'll be shipped to you. But if you get to, you know, if you got Prime, it'll be to you. It may not be two days. It may be five days. But you can still get the same stuff you want from Amazon. <laughs> mm-hmm. And one thing that this COVID has shown us is that you can work remotely. And what was it? Right? Right. Country, it was, there's one country where it's saying, you know, like they were welcoming people who wanted to come and work, and they wanted to come and work remotely. They'd be happy to have you. Now, um, they're trying to be putting that up there like, hey, I want to say even the Barbados has said, you know, hey, people who want to work remotely, come in. We welcome you. We can provide you all of this. So there are opportunities in challenging times to where we can live better, particularly once you get to that point where you have an income, a standing, um, Zami Nobla, which is an organization that deals with lesbians over 40, they have a some people who they have interviewed where there are, are these couples and they said, well, you know, we've retired, we had Social Security, we had some pension, not a lot, and there's some who are living abroad. And they're going like, you know, so much better. You know, so much better. Like places like like Hanoi, I was when I was there in Vietnam, um, I went up to Hanoi for a couple of days and realized I was like, where's why are some of these folks up in here in Hanoi? And came to realize that the, the the country had been building its infrastructure, internet infrastructure, because that's what, the, what they were doing for people to, uh-huh. to work remotely. Uh-huh. So that's what I'm saying. These these countries are now changing in such a way that if you have certain types of skills, you can do it anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, you sure can. And particularly, I mean, once we get your first book deal done, you know, okay. I mean, then, then we can be writing from anywhere, you know, because that's what I would say. That's what I see. Me sitting someplace writing away from here, you know. So, so it's like that. Well, my friend, um, I gotta go fix myself something to eat. But now that you're right down okay. the road, now that you're right down the road, I hope this fall to get to Chicago, and I'm gonna let you know when I'm coming in. We can have dinner and talk, and I'm glad you're there. I'm glad you're you're doing better, and well, I'm you. looking forward to seeing this next phase of your life, what it's going to bring. Well, thank you. Well, you've always been a great friend, and I've enjoyed the process. And may we continue to keep this conversation going because it's a conversation. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com.
want to thank my friend, Dayu Abdullah, for spending time with me this afternoon. I'm looking forward to seeing what direction this next chapter of his life takes him. In these days of social distancing, make time to reconnect with friends and family. None of us are alone in this journey. And together, with those we love, we'll find our way to that new normal. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can support the podcast by becoming a sponsor of Collections by Michelle Brown on Patreon.com. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.